So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. I want to talk to you this morning for a few minutes from the thought, damaged but not worthless. Damaged but not worthless. As we consider that concept this morning, I am reminded of Michelangelo's sculpture of David. In 1501, at the age of 26 years old, young Michelangelo received a commission from the city of Florence, Italy, to carve a figure of one of our biblical giants, David, from an 18-foot block of marble. However, the only problem was is that the block of marble had been badly cut, damaged, broken, and abandoned by another sculptor. Many wondered if he would be able to accomplish the task at hand. Michelangelo worked three years on the sculpture, and when it was finished, it was placed in town square, and the citizens of Florence were filled with admiration for the stunning work Michelangelo had performed, did. Many other Renaissance artists, such as Donatello, had already given the city images of the young David, but it was Michelangelo's figure that gave the most powerful expression to the idea of David. And I believe if Michelangelo was here this morning, he would tell us that though things are damaged, does not necessarily mean they are worthless. As we consider this idea of damaged and not worthless, I am reminded of the life of Benjamin Carson. He was born in the rough and rugged streets of Detroit. His mother, Sonia, had dropped out of school in third grade and married at the age of 13. And when Benjamin was only eight years old, his parents divorced and Miss Carson was left to raise Benjamin and his older brother, Curtis, on her own. Because of the divorce, she was left to work two and sometimes three jobs. Due to her frequent, frequent absence from home, Benjamin and his brother failed in, in school. Carson fell to the bottom of his class academically, and his classmates began to make fun of him, calling him dummy. And from this, he developed a violent temper, an uncontrollable temper. That's the young Benjamin. But if you fast forward a few years, we see Carson on the up and up. He later succeeds and excels to uh, the top of his class academically. Benjamin goes on to graduate with honors from high school. He furthers his education at the Univer Yale University where he earns a degree in psychology. He goes on to do postgraduate work at medical school of the University of Michigan where he studies neurosurgery. 
At age of 32, he became the hospital's director of pediatric neurosurgery. And in 1987, Carson made medical history with an operation to separate a pair of Siamese twins known as the Binder Twins. If Dr. Carson was standing here today, he would tell you that although you may come from brokenness, that does not necessarily mean you're worthless. There are many more examples I could give, and so could you. Uh, but let's direct our attention to the text. Even in our selected text, we meet a man who's damaged, perhaps, but who discovers he's not worthless. This is not just any man. He's one of Jesus' Jesus's original disciples. His name is Simon Peter. You know him, don't you? And it's almost shocking to see Peter at this point in his life, especially if you have in your minds uh, the early Peter, pre-resurrection and pre-trial Peter. Peter is not just any disciple. He's the disciple of the twelve. Prior to this point in his denial, the Peter that I know is a confident Peter. He's a self-reliant disciple. Prior to this point and before the denial, the Peter that I know resembles some of us in this room today. I noticed that Peter attended one of the best seminaries of his day called Jesus and the Original Disciples. Matter of fact, this seminary was so distinguished that only 12 men could get in. During his matriculation, we find that Peter is an elite student. He asks all the good questions and sometimes stupid ones. At times, Peter represents for us uh, the student who thinks he or she knows more than the professor. Peter is the one who receives revelation from God. You know, one day Jesus asked a tough question for no extra credit, you know, no extra credit at all. Who do people say that I am? Some say that you're John the Baptist, Elijah. And Peter, being the spokesperson for the disciples, cracks the code and says, you are the Christ or you are the son of man, depending on which gospel tradition you're reading. Congratulations, Peter, Jesus says, but know that you didn't answer that with your own knowledge. Peter is also an apologist, not merely with words. He, he really tries to defend Christ. Peter is the elite of the elites. Peter is what Dr. Steele is, the Pauline scholarship. Peter is what Dr. Glory and Dr. Joel Gregory is to homiletics. This is the early Peter. However, the Peter we meet in this passage is a different Peter. He's a person who is experiencing the aftermath of failure. One who has realized how devote less he was to his Lord. The Peter in this text, his confidence had collapsed. 
His self-assurance had shriveled. Peter's promises to our Lord has, had suffered a hurricane Sandy. They had been swept away by the strong winds of fear that evening at the trial of Jesus. What happened to this seminary student who was preparing himself for ministry? What happened to him? Perhaps he had gotten absorbed in self-conceit. Perhaps he had relied too much on his own understanding and missed earlier some crucial lessons from Jesus. But moreover, when we compare the confident, self-reliant, ready Peter of the post-pre-resurrection to this distraught, motionless, damaged Peter in John 21, 15, 17, we learn that this type of digression uh, that Peter is in happens to the best of them. This type of digression that Peter is in happens to the best of them. What will he do? Well, only Christ himself can pull Peter from this crisis if Peter is going to continue in ministry. I said earlier that Peter, the Peter we met before Jesus' trial, was a confident, strong, always ready to serve Christ type of person. And that he represents many of us today in this chapel. But the truth of the matter is, is that the Peter we see in this pericope also represents many of us who are in this room. Here it is, after Jesus and his disciples had finished eating the fish and biscuits or whatever they ate for breakfast during that time, Jesus puts his detective hat on and begins to question Peter. He asks Peter uh, essentially the same question three times. And there's some scholarly discussion about the structure of the dialogue between uh, Peter and Jesus. Some interpret it as a form of liturgy. Others interpret this three-question form uh, as a Near Eastern custom of, say, of saying something three times before witness in order to validate it. Others interpret this dialogue as uh, the writer intentionally trying to direct your attention back to the threefold, three denial. Nevertheless, regardless of your interpretation, I think the outcome is evident and the same. That is, this form of interrogation forces Peter to stare deep into the heart of his failure. And as he's looking at his failure and the one who he failed, Christ leads Peter to examine the condition of his heart. Notice that he didn't ask Peter for an apology. He didn't even ask Peter to repent. But he asked Peter about his love. He focuses in on the condition of Peter's heart. Why the heart, Jesus? 
Because Jesus knew what the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Why the heart, Jesus? Jesus knew that if he could get Peter's heart, then all other things would come. Why the heart, Jesus? Because Jesus knew that if Peter could establish within himself that he genuinely loves Christ, then there was room for him to be used. Peter, Jesus, directs and leads Peter to stare deep into the heart of his failure. But not only does this three-fold uh, questioning draws Peter's attention to confront his own heart, but Peter makes a confession. He he tells us that he had a revelation. He simply confessed that Christ has supreme knowledge. It's right there in the text. The three times Jesus asked Peter about his love, Peter says, you know that I love you. This is, can be somewhat startling considering the early Peter but here we have a Peter who has progressed. We have a Peter whose character has shifted. Christ knows. We see it in the first two questions. But it really unfolds in the third one. When Jesus asked him the third time, Peter, do you love me? The text says that he was grieved. And he goes all out and says, listen, I'm not going to get into this whole who knows more thing. Listen, you know that I love you. You know all things. He does not make the mistake again of relying on his own understanding and wisdom. As Peter stares deep into the past, his past failure, he confesses what he learned, what he's learned about the one who has failed him. What have you learned? As you examine over and over again your failures, what have you learned? There's something to be learned about Christ. What have you learned from your shortcomings and failures of Christ? Have you learned that Christ is all-powerful? that Christ grants peace in the times of storm, that Christ upholds you when you have fallen, that Christ forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives you, even though you don't deserve it? What have you learned? That God does not side with your racism or bigotry? That Christ does not care about your achievements, education, accolades, if they're not used to serve others? What have you learned? What have you learned? That your preaching and teaching means little of nothing if you don't deeply care for the, your students and congregation as you stare deep into, into your failures. There are things to be learned about Christ. But to conceal this restoration. Peter, Christ, 
confers upon Peter one of the loftiest positions that I know of. And that is a place in the Christian ministry. For Peter, he would become the pastor of a Jerusalem church and missionary preacher. And how sweet the sound of tend my sheep, shepherd my sheep, it is to Peter. I wondered if Peter wrestled in his mind. Lord, I want to, but you, you know what I've done. Lord, I, I don't know if I can. I've failed you already. But over and over again, he hears those words. If you love me, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Three times, Jesus confers upon Peter this lofty position. How sweet the sound this is to Peter. And let us never lose sight of how important this position is. You know, we're around this type of thing all the time. And it's easy for us, I've seen it, it's easy for us to lose sight on how important uh, this ministry that Jesus calls us into, particularly in a multicultural, diverse world who, uh, where there's doctors and lawyers and engineers, uh, we're quickly to lose sight of how important our task is. As I reflect on my task, the preaching task, anytime I begin to lose sight or begin to feel weary, to begin to feel as if my service is in vain. I remind myself of the many letters that I've received. I remind myself of the, 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 the many um, statements that I've see, received as, of how I help someone. And, and I'm reminded of a story of one of my favorite preachers, Dr. Gardner C. Taylor. He says one day as he was headed to the hospital to visit one of his deacons, um, who was in the intensive care unit. He says by the time he got there, he uh, was already comatose. And he says his daughter pulled him aside and said that some of the last words of the deacon was, if only I could hear the preacher again. I'm reminded of how important our task is. Although at times I may seem and feel worthless, if I can determine, if I can establish deep within that I truly love Christ, then I see Christ finding worth in me. Shepherd my sheep, tend my flock. Amen.